Lily and Joshua. And may this be the kind of beautiful day as we have the hope that's born into a beautiful morning, the hope, the morning of joy. Let's pray. Lord, we've gathered in your house to worship you. We've given you gifts. We've sung you praise. We've come together, Lord, so that we might worship you in our human relationships with harmony and togetherness and purposefulness. Now I'm praying, Lord, as we open the word, that our hearts would be open, that we would obey, that we would move, that we'd find encouragement and strength to do what you've called us to. And I pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. Holding in my hands an article entitled, What Really Ails America? It's written by a former education uh, secretary, William Bennett, who also uh, collected what became known as the Book of Virtues. And uh, in it, he describes some dialogue with a Polish exchange student. And in the experience of the dialogue, he's a little bit offended at this young person's critique of our American youth experience. He says, I have an intrinsic aversion to foreigners harshly judging my nation. But I must concede that much of what they say is true. Something's gone wrong. Yes, there are families, schools, churches, and neighborhoods that work, but there is a lot less virtue than there ought to be. Last year, I compiled, this was written in 1999, to give you perspective. Last year, I compiled the Index of Leading Cultural Indicators, a statistical portrait of American behavioral trends of the past three decades. Among the findings since 1960, while the gross domestic product has nearly tripled, violent crime has increased at at least 560%. Divorces have more than doubled. The percentage of ch children in single-parent homes has tripled. And by the end of the decade, 40% of all American births and 80% of minority births will occur out of wedlock. Now, I'm not going to go any farther in this. I want to reference to something much more up-to-date which is an online article that was published on May 16, just a few weeks ago. This is Understanding the Teen Mental Crisis. And this article, written by a Joel uh, Mathis, makes some very interesting observations. He says that the Centers for Disease Control said in March that four in ten teens feel persistently sad or depressed. And one in five have complained suicide. While young people largely escaped the COVID-19 deaths that afflicted older generations, they might still pay a steep price for the pandemic, having come of age while weathering isolation, uncertainty, economic turmoil, and for many, grief. And then he asked a question, what is behind this epidemic of teen sadness and what can be done about it? He goes on to reference to the whistleblower, Francis Hogan, who disclosed that last year Facebook's internal research showed that teens blame Instagram for their depression. And one, over the last three decades, anxiety, depression, and suicide and self-harm have soared among teens, says Matt Richel in the New York Times 2019. Now, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that it's a good day in spite of those things. Can you say amen? It's a beautiful Sabbath morning. I can tell you unequivocally I'm looking forward to the camp meeting. If you can't go, I hope that you'll watch online and be blessed. This is the equivalent of the Old Testament uh, Feast of Booths. It still has typical value to it. In other words, it's a symbol that still represents that we're pilgrims and strangers in this foreign land. I wake up, I get to come to church in freedom. I get to worship with all of you, listen to you sing, be blessed by your 
fellowship and your encouragement and worship. But this morning, as I come to the end of our series on saving our children, I want to assure you that if we aim at nothing, we'll hit it every time. And that might be just a little bit too hard of a critique of where we might find ourselves spiritually in America or even inside of Seventh-day Adventism. But this morning, I'm here to suggest it's time for us to turn away from the aimlessness of our Christian living, which allows us to go along with the experience of the larger American people enjoying the blessings of Americanism without the hope that is to shape and direct and focus and aim our education, our money, and our influence for the cause of Christ. And I'm actually here to suggest this morning that the greatest thing we could lose is the loss of the experience that would strengthen our church through our youth, save them through service, and give them joy with which to fight back against this epidemic of teen sadness and depression. As a matter of fact, I'm completely convinced that a teenager or a young 20-something whose life is hidden Christ and whose life is devoted to Christ can have the same kind of joy that teenagers throughout the millennia have experienced as they've recognized a divine calling, a divine purpose, and a divine provision as they carry out that purpose. This morning, I want to look at the lives of different mentors and mentorees in the Bible, and I will renew my invitation to something I touched on at least in the first service three sermons ago. In that service, I mentioned that it's time for us to consider doing something. My conviction on this has deepened. What did I say in that first service? I talked about raising $100,000 for the commissioning and the directing and the implementing and the remunerating, not on an hourly basis because I'm calling our church to create a structure not that, implement, that imitates some of the other structures that are already in place, but we're coming to a moment where I believe we ought to look like the Mormons look at their young people as a resource not only to strengthen the church, but to strengthen their own experience through asking them to make a commitment of at least one year of their life before they graduate from college. And I'm here this morning to suggest that this won't happen without structure, without prayer, without organization, without money. And raising the money may be the easiest thing. Some of you have already gone ahead of me before I was officially asking and have placed money. I know one family placed $1,000. I had someone tell me just a few minutes ago they placed some in, not quite that much. But I do believe this, that this is a church with about 500 giving units, and I believe that we just need 99 others to make the same kind of offering so that beginning somewhere in this next year, we are training and commissioning and enabling and sending our students out. As I said in the first service this morning, our student missionaries and our interns have made a tremendous difference here. Imagine if every one of our teachers at our village school had one volunteer in them. And that volunteer was not only learning how to teach, but they were helping the teacher teach to the degree that they were prepared to do that and manage the class. Imagine what, well, I'll tell you what I'm after. Ellen White writes in Education, page 272, I think it is, that what we need is an army of youth rightly trained. I don't want a few loosely confederated people with a few loosely confederated ideas. I really want to see an army of youth. I want to see people who know how to work together, focus, and succeed in driving back the forces of the evil for the salvation of souls. And to do that, we need will. 
And as I mentioned in that first uh, sermon three Sabbaths ago in first service, this idea was suggested to me by my conference president at the time, who is now a union president. As far as I know, nothing has been established to achieve it. I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt, the kids in this denomination, and especially in this church, ought to have hundreds of invitations to dedicate a year of their life from the beginning of their understanding of speech until they are speech pathologists or audiologists or physical therapists or engineers or doctors or carpenters or whatever they might be. And I believe parents should be training their young people that all of their giftedness is a function of other people's inputs and that they are obligated, they are indebted to all the people who have sacrificed in previous generations, sacrificed in this generation, including our own teachers and others, and that they ought to be saying to themselves, I owe it to God and to myself, because I think the great undiscovered treasure in a lot of young people's hearts is how much joy they would have actively serving the Lord and doing it for free. Now, I'm raising the resources because we do need to help these kids be able to pay for a little bit of gas, a little insurance on their car, money to go home and see their parents every once in a while, etc. But this morning, I'm here unembarrassedly, unabashedly, saying that it's time for us to place our kids in positions where they know how to shoot at the enemy. And I'm speaking metaphorically. They know how to draw the sword. When I was a kid, my mom and dad gave me a BB gun. It was a wonderful learning opportunity and a potential formula for disaster all at the same time. I've told you about these stories before, and when I repeat my stories, I know most of the time when I'm repeating them, so don't think the pastor forgot. But the audience does change every once in a while, and by God's grace, it grows. And I'm talking to the people that are watching online this morning as well. I, I, I could use your help too. God is looking for your help. Well, I just happened to have one of those Daisy BB guns, and it was different than my buddy's, which was a, his looked like a 30-30 lever action. Mine was like a pump shotgun, and I would pull the lever, and I'd suck in some air. And one day, I don't know how I got permission to do this. We were in the backyard shooting. I grew up on a little postage stamp of a yard, and I got to bragging. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And the fall was just in front of me. Although it would look like success for a brief moment, um, I told my buddy that my BB gun would shoot farther than his. And of course, every self-respecting young BB gun owner has to say that's not true. And then every self-respecting BB gun owner has to prove it's true. And of course, the backyard was too small to prove that my gun would shoot farther. So I said, you see that greenhouse down over the way there? We were in the backyard. Of course, we didn't like the person that lived in the greenhouse. He was kind of a grump. And I said, I'll bet you my BB gun will shoot all the way down to that house. And I took the BB gun, and I didn't even hold it up to my arm to aim it. I shot from the hip, which sometimes is a bad idea. But I understood physics, and I knew my BB would go farther if I lobbed it. I didn't really probably think I could hit the man's window. But when he came out of his house and looked at the window, I started to get worried. And when the police car pulled up in front of my house, I was really worried. It was one of those moments when it would have been better to have gotten in trouble by my mother and my father first, who were not home, so that they could buffer between me and the policeman. And I don't know if I sat in the policeman's car. I don't think so. But uh, the big, um, what's the word I want, macho BB gun owner had the tears rolling down his eyes as he 
He apologized to the homeowner and to the policeman all standing out there in front of the public for everybody driving up and down the road to say, why is the policeman at the Kelly's house? There was a statement we had when we were target practicing and we'd say, you couldn't hit the broad side of the barn if it was falling on you. I'm concerned that as Adventists, we don't even know what the target is anymore. And I'm concerned sometimes when teachers are encouraging young people to choose careers where they make good money. I want to tell you this morning, uh, the last I talked with one superintendent, the North American Division is short 300 teachers to fill classrooms. Now, we've hired two very experienced teachers for our local village school, which will make excellent additions to our current teaching staff already. But I want you to imagine those little one-room schools in North Dakota where nobody wants to go because there's beautiful mountains and wonderful weather. Do they need church school teachers in North Dakota? Sorry if you're watching from North Dakota. I think it's a pretty place. But in the winter, nobody wants to be there. What's happened to our denomination? I mean, I'm afraid that parents and grandparents have enjoyed the good life and they've forgotten that the real focus is preparing for heaven. On the first page of, of the book Education, we are instructed that the real goal of education is to prepare our children for a life of service here. The joy of service, the author says, in this world and the higher joy in the world to come. And then she says what we really need to do is prepare our students for the full spectrum of life that they're capable of living. My concern is with our current target, the only life they're going to get is the one they get here. Because God is in the act of judging the world right now, and that judgment will come to an end. And while provision's been made to receive our internal, eternal inheritance, there is a cooperation that we are to have with God. The life of Christ lived within us, the cross of Christ carried with us, with Him. The actual sanctification, the remaking of, of a heart. And because doing is becoming, the more we do what the world does, does the more we become as the world is. And this morning I'm here to tell you, it's not so much that the church couldn't keep limping along without a year of service from its youth, but what I fear is, is that with every, with every uh, journey around the sun, with every annual experience, we're losing just a little more altitude. But worse than that, our young people are trading in the potential for a life of eternal impact, for a life of temporary and mortal pleasure and good. And so this morning... I want to just briefly look at the scriptures as to what they have to say about this mentoring relationship, what to expect, how it might turn out. Before we do that, I want to say thank you to my own mother who trained me hand, head, and heart. She trained me how to respect authority. She trained me that the teachers were her best friends and they better be my most looked up to people outside of the home. I want to thank my mother that when my bicycle broke down, she showed me how to fix it once and then she made me fix it on my own otherwise. I want to thank my mother that when she told me to vacuum the living room and she said, move the ottoman and vacuum behind the door and she checked, she said, if you don't do it all right, you will do the whole thing over, even if I move the ottoman and there's dirt underneath it. I want to thank my mother that she raised me not as a fragile individual, but she raised me believing that life would be okay and I could handle it. I was almost never afraid as a child. And I had an immense amount of ability, of confidence to believe that things could be done. These were not things I summoned on my own. They were gifts from God that came through other people. 
I want to thank my church school teachers whom I fell in love with, and then I really wanted to be who they wanted me to be, and they led me to Christ. I want to thank my pastor who gave me Bible studies, and I want to thank the church for the experiences it gave me. I can remember when I graduated from high school, I went to work at a summer camp. I could wish for all of our young people they could all work at a summer camp. It was during that time at a summer camp that I discovered the basics of leadership. I discovered the power of prayer. Those kids from Chicago that came to Southern Illinois, I realized real quick that I wasn't going to win unless the Holy Spirit worked for me. And how many times did I, I can still see myself sitting down at the little worship point and I'm saying to the Lord, Lord, touch their hearts. I'm whispering it. I'm saying it in my mind. And I prayed for God to give me wisdom how to reach their hearts because people don't change through human force. They change because they choose. And I'm here to tell you, when I read that staff manual for Little Grassy Lake, and it said, the boss says do this. The leader says, let's us do this. And I got the basics of leadership. I was an arrow that was in somebody's bow. And I want you to remember what Psalm 127 says, like arrows in a quiver are children in one's youth. What are arrows used for? They are used to hit a target. These children are to be raised to do damage to the darkness and the evil in our age. They are not being raised to be conformed to it. But if they are not utilized, and by the way, to be utilized, they need to have some basic maturity, some basic experience. I grow weary of talking about empowering people with their gifts when they've never been challenged to have an experience that's safe to empower. I want to repeat that. We've heard enough about empowering young people. Let's grow them into readiness to be stewards of empowerment, and then we can empower them. The truth of the matter is, this is work between parents, teachers, pastors, and church leaders. I want to praise the Lord for my pathfindering. I want to praise the Lord for all those memory verses. I want to praise the Lord for all those books I read to get invested about these amazing Adventist missionaries. I want to praise the Lord that God was moving me along the way, preparing me, and that I got a little target practice or I was used to hit the target before I was actually preparing my own children and other people's children to be a part in this battle between good and bad, light and darkness, right and wrong. Three mentoring relationships. Take your Bibles this morning if you would. Let's go to the first one in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 17. I want you to see something. This is the first time we have a reference to Joshua. Joshua will be the young man that God is using and getting ready to use in an even greater fashion. In Exodus chapter 17, we have this young man that has been put at the head of the armies of Israel. Exodus 17 verse 8 says, Then Amalek came out and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us. It's pretty interesting. He's entrusting him to do some choosing. Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. And tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Then Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on the top of the hill. And so it came about when Moses held his hands up, that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. Listen, every young person should be trained and taught at home that their victories are victories in Christ and that their victories are not pulled off out of a vacuum. This is the age of great pronouncement. 
You know, I, I watched, I want to say how proud I was of our eighth graders and their graduation service and, and the dignity that was there. The way they conducted themselves as they walked across the platform and got their diplomas. It was a real testament to the parents and the teachers. But I want to tell you something. We're living in the age of the self-made men and women, which is a fallacy. It's not true. Everybody's standing on somebody's shoulders. And Joshua wasn't down there fighting the Amalekites in his own strength. He was being prayed over and supported by the structure that was above him, a generation in front of him. And this morning, that's what I'm asking this church to do. I'm asking, I'm calling us to a renewed support structure that commissions and empowers and supports. That's why I'm after that $100,000, and that will only be the beginning. But I know this, an army of youth rightly trained is a pretty intimidating dynamic to the wokeism and the darkness that's in our current society. But I'm looking for a different experience. God's looking for a different experience. And that experience are kids who haven't been drinking from the broken cisterns that flow through their devices, who haven't been spending the kind of screen time that all these depressed kids in this pandemic of sadness have been spending. There is almost an undisputed connection between screen time and depression. And there's almost no social scientist that will deny it. So I'm actually saying to you, your kids will be a lot better off this summer if they live life without their phones, if they live life without their tablets and their devices. That's how I lived, and that's how a lot of you lived, and we all managed to make it just fine, I suspect. Now, when you're separated and they need to connect with you, okay, but I'll tell you what, as a parent, I grew old of this line that they have to have the device to go to school. Well, I'll tell you what, we might want to be structuring schools where they don't have to have the devices to do schooling because the devices are a snare. They're a Trojan horse, and they're an invitation to the destruction of the innocence of your children. Now, there's a way to do it, and I'm not here to be a Neanderthal and suggest that we can't find a way to incorporate, but I am here to suggest, you know, I'm here to proclaim with conviction the devil is active in reshaping the minds. Go back to last week's sermon, by beholding your change. It's not a postulate. It's not a hypothesis. It's not a theorem. It's a fact. And that's what's happening. And you parents aren't above it either just because you know it's not true. Or maybe it is true and just interesting. How many things have you been sucked into watching that reshaped your mind in ways you didn't want it reshaped, stuck things in the recesses that tend to pop out when you don't want them to? Yes, we have Joshua who's succeeding under the infrastructure of the generation ahead of him and succeeding through the prayers. He is empowered. He doesn't always get it right, though. Turn over to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. This is a small thing. It's not particularly important. But in Exodus chapter 32, his judgment is not quite that of his mentors. Exodus chapter 32, looking at verse 17. It says, now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, this is coming down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he said, there's a sound of war in the camp. And he's corrected. He said, it is not the sound, Moses did, of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing that I hear. Listen, for those of you young people that God's moving on your heart, and I hope it's echoed over and over again, I hope every parent starts sowing it in the minds of their kids from a very early age, God is calling you to dedicate a year of your life. What are you going to do with it? When you get to that age where you're ready to go, you may know more about technology and you may know more about a number of other things, but you need to be able to be corrected. You need to be humble enough to pour water on the prophet's hands like Elisha did for Elijah. And by the way, Elisha was an adult grown man, heir to a large farming inheritance. 
but he still did some pretty basic things. God's calling us to the simplicity of a mentor relationship that allows us to get a little stronger, form some bonds across generations, and grow. In Numbers chapter 14, let's look there, we find Joshua exuding an amazing amount of confidence, attempting to turn the whole nation in the right direction. He's one of 12 that went to spy out the land. Numbers chapter 14, looking at verses 6 to 8, the word in the camp is bad news. We came this far, we can't go forward, there's giants in the land. But Joshua rises up from the courage he gets from God and also the mentorship he got from Moses. Verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. Why? Because the people are lamenting that they can't go into the promised land. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, statement of faith, then he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And the result was the congregation wanted to stone them. Verse 10. Now listen, we must be raising up young people who feed on the Word of God, who read the stories of great men and women of triumph and faith, be they Adventists or not. We must be raising young people who have a simple belief that God still answers prayers. He's still on His throne. There's still a world to win. There's still three angels' messages to be given. We must be doing for our young people that which will make them strong in a weak society, courageous amongst those who would seek to step on and stomp out the witness of God. But what we must do is we must give them their own walk with God. They must embrace it for themselves. Some have, some have not. But I do believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that if we could use them and they would make themselves available for some target practice, they might sign up seeing the nobility of the cause and having a little bit of confidence that grows with it. And along the way, a deepening walk with God. It's wonderful for a child to have a mentor who's not their parent. And that year of training, that year of dedication, and some of our student missionaries are taking two. Now, there is one more little misstep that's written in the Scriptures. If you look a little farther back into chapter 11 of Numbers, you'll find that in his uh, fervor for his master, he's a little bit to step on the development of others. That is Joshua. Numbers chapter 11, there's an amazing thing going on. All of the chapters in the book of Numbers are not stories of how things turn out wrong. We actually have a spiritual revival going on. Verse 27, Numbers 11. So a young man ran and told Moses, and he said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So here we have the story of a, 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 a younger man used by God, willing to be molded by his mentor, didn't think he had it all figured out, understood the lines of authority, but was willing to take risk. What an amazing heritage and lineage for those of us that come behind him. Now let's go over to the book of 1 Samuel. Turn to the book of 1 Samuel, and I want to look at a far-from-ideal mentoring situation. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we find out that this is really not the place you want your kids to do their internship. 
especially in their formative years. The problem is that Hannah has already dedicated Samuel, and this institution, flawed as it may be, is the institution that Samuel will be a young mentoree in. 1 Samuel chapter 2, when we look at the experience of Eli and his sons, it is not good. Beginning with verse 27, then a man of God came to Eli and he said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not reveal, indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? So this is a rebuke to the high priest. Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to carry an ephod before me? He's being rebuked. He's being told that your lineage is this, all the way back to Aaron, but you're not living it. And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? What that means is, is that the part of the offering that was to come to the priesthood, some of it was burned for God. Some of it was kept for the sustenance of the priest. Verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourself fat with the choices of everything of my people in Israel? The Bible tells us that God's revelations in those days were very rare. That's because Eli's sons were very bad, and Eli did nothing to do anything about it. Verse 22 of the same chapter. It says, now Eli was very old, and he heard that his sons, what they were doing in all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. But he didn't do anything about it. All he did was talk a little bit. He didn't remove them. He didn't institute any kind of reform. It turns out that Samuel himself becomes the second round of rebuke to Eli. Now, I don't know how old Samuel is when he has the dream. You know when he's laying there? And the God of heaven says to him, Samuel, Samuel. We don't know how old he is, but he's clearly still a young person. Three times this happens, and finally God speaks to Samuel, and what he has heard, he does not want to share. If you look at chapter 3, verse 13, it says, for I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because, verse 13, his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. How many of our kids are bringing curses on themselves and nobody's rebuking them? Listen, high support and high expectation. This is how you produce a well-functioning, well-adjusted, strong young person. What we've got good in American society is high support. We're the esteemism capital of the world. What we don't have so good is the high accountability part that says, of whom too much is given, much is expected. You give somebody a lot of esteem without a lot of accountability, and you produce a person who sort of feels good about themselves but knows that they don't really deserve it. You know, this year in Pathfinders, one of the things that was important to me that I believe is important to many Pathfinder leaders and that I communicated to the kids is that, you know what? You're not getting any honors unless you earn them. And when I say you're not getting them unless you earn them, because you know what I really want them to take away from the honor? Self-respect. Not just a, a badge. There are kids in this club who have way more honors than I do. I am a master guide. And I was in Pathfinders for a good little bit. I look at some of their sashes like, whoa. But you know what a kid really needs to be strong and not be sad? They need a purpose. They need self-respect. They need to know they actually put a little sweat into this and actually earned it. 
So for this esteemism movement that's on, it doesn't work, friends. It backfires when you don't actually strengthen the mental muscle, the, the muscle of, of the moral sinew and fiber of the heart and the ability to really train and use your hand well. Yes, it's not an environment that I would have wanted to put my firstborn son in, and yet that's exactly where she put him. But I would like to look at one more commentary on somebody that was stuck in a mentoring relationship, actually two. If you'll turn over, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3, I want to look at Elisha and Elijah, just very briefly. Elisha and Elijah. Here is this young man plowing with these multiple yoke of oxen. He accepts the call to follow Elijah. This is not a lucrative life, but it will be a life of honor, although his ministry will start out with a bit of dishonor as the disrespectful young people of Bethel will tell him to go up, you bald head. But God steps in and handles that with the she-bears. Forty-some kids mauled all through the rest of their life. They have scars reminding them that that's not what you do. But in 1 Kings chapter, or 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, we are reminded of how things started out for Elisha, this very well-to-do young man who turned his back on his wealth and decided to follow the prophet and the prophet's God. Verse 11, this is the commentary on Elisha. This is being stated in the king's chamber. So lest you think that it's an out-of-the-way detail, it's not. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king's Israel, king of Israel's servants answered, and he said, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. It's exceptionally important that we train our young people that no duty is undignified if it's done well, that nothing is beneath them, and there is no stratification of people in God's eyes except on the merit of character. And it's a beautiful testimony to Elisha that this rich young heir to a large farming fortune is willing to go back to just being a humble servant in the house of the prophet. If you're listening to me today and you're a young person, are you willing to do the simple and the ordinary things for God until he decides to graduate you to the bigger things? Everybody's got to deal with this. The preacher does. The parents do. The teachers do. Everybody. The last one I want to look at this morning is John Mark. If you'll turn over to the book of Acts chapter 12. This young man who made a serious stumble in the course of events created a breach in friendship so strong that Barnabas will go one direction and Paul with Silas will go another. Acts chapter 12, looking at verse 25. Now, there's a few things you should know about John Mark. John Mark was a cousin to Barnabas. Won't take the time to prove it now, but it's a fact. And the other thing you should know is that when Peter got out of jail, you know, the miraculous one where the gates opened three different times and he was let out by an angel, when they go to Rhoda's, where, where Rhoda greets them, that is actually John Mark's house. So I want you to understand something. John Mark has a very strong spiritual lineage, but John Mark is still a little bit wobbly in spine. He's a little bit weak in backbone. And so when he goes out on that first expedition with Paul and Barnabas, it gets a little rough. It's a little scary. I don't know what constitutes that weakness. I do know this. He went home prematurely, and Paul says to Barnabas when he suggests we get him again for the journey, Paul says, no, that's not going to work. Now, I'm here to very confidently assure you that John Mark needed both Paul and Barnabas in his life. Okay? Both of them had a role. 
Paul wasn't quite as patient and looking at the long run, but Paul did understand that you can't lean on a broken reed and something has to change before we bring him along again because this is not the age of call love, triple A or 911 and get yourself out of a jam. When you're dealing with robbers, when you're dealing with storms, when you're dealing with all kinds of perdition inside the church and out of it, you need people in your team you can depend on. John Mark was not that person on the first trip. And Paul says to Barnabas, no, this isn't going to work. The Bible goes so far as to say that it was quite an argument. Yes, that's Ron Kelly's version. But the disagreement was so sharp that their friendship was strained, not broken, but strained for a good little while. Now, we all know from the biblical record when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 4 or 2 Timothy 4, we all know in the end that this was a resolved dynamic. As a matter of fact, let's turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 11, we know that they did go their different ways. We know that God worked between and amongst all of them. And there was some kind of growth in John Mark, and there was some kind of healing and growth also in Paul. But mistakes were made. The target was not hit. There were stumbles. So for those churches that will receive these young men and these young women, they need to be prepared to be wise and kind and have a balanced approach that does include accountability but also includes encouragement. Second Timothy chapter 4, or verse 11. He says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Sometimes these wounds take a long time to heal. Sometimes the grow-up phase is a period of time and separation. This morning, I'm completely convinced that in the early days of this church, our young people were constantly, constantly immersed in a culture that said working for this church is the most, one of the most noble things you can do. Now, my father-in-law died this last year. He was the youngest of eight children. I don't think it was exactly as it should have been in some respects, but I'm going to tell you something. My wife's grandmother might have had as much pride wrapped up in that one boy as all the other eight children, seven children combined. Not that she wasn't proud of them. But my father-in-law dedicated his entire life to serving God's church. And that, for her, was an amazing accomplishment. Our young people must, from the very beginning of their self-conscious age, be reminded that their lives are not their own. They were bought with a price and they are to glorify God with their young lives. It's all right if they live out their dreams, if their dreams are lived out under this biblical directive that we should delight ourselves in the Lord and then He will give us the desires of our heart. But just to teach our kids to go live out their wishes and their whims with their amazing talents, which are a gift, whether it's heredity or environment, is child abuse, perhaps eternal child abuse, because some of them will only be saved in service. Yea, most of us will only be saved in service. And while lots of money and respect and prestige are nice and our world still bows down to a certain measure of that, success in character, success in compassion, success in competency, these are the whole package of the Adventist way. And this morning, I want you to be reminded, Jesus, the creator of the world, never once showed off 
in his youth, his amazing ability. He didn't razzle-dazzle his friends with a little divine power here and there. He took the humble jobs. He showed the decent, ordinary courtesy. He dedicated himself to a life of ignominy and disrespect. His mother reminded him of his mission, and at age 12, he recommitted his own heart as a young adult to that mission. And this morning here, I'm calling the Adventist church, starting with this one that I pastor, I'm calling the parents back to know what the target is. If you don't know what the target is, how are your kids going to hit it? It's heaven, friends. It's the joy of higher service in this, in this world and the higher service in the world to come. I'm calling us back to where we cannot be easily made fun of by the forces of hell because we can't hit the broad side of a barn if it was falling on us. The world's coming to an end. I had one person say to me this morning, we've already, he prayed with me, we've been through COVID and it doesn't look like it really got our attention too terribly much. Listen, friends, the world locked down in two weeks. We saw a dry run at some level to what degree you're willing to go in regards to how far you can draw the analogies out of that. But I'm here to tell you something. The ministry of orthodontia is on from the world. Constant, steady pressure. But he's not about making your smile prettier. He's about conforming you to his image. But I'm here to tell you something. Through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, our kids can not only be made into the image of Christ, but they can be arrows in the hands of their parents and the institutions that have reared and raised them and sacrificed so they could have these fantastic educations. But it's time to go back to hand, head, and heart. And then usefulness. A year of service to serve our dear Lord and His church. I know God's going to reawaken his people. I know he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. It's going to be us listening to the Spirit and moving in harmony. And so today, in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave those children to the parents and gave those children to the larger church family and to the children themselves, I'm calling you, give of your best to the Master. Give of the strength of your youth. I'm appealing to you today, entire church entire culture, I'm calling us back to a simple commitment to the one thing that matters most. If they don't become accomplished in this or that, but they learn how to win a soul, and they are useful to strengthening the church. The church is dying in the Western world, not here to rain on anybody's parade. It's not coming back to life until the uplifted Christ gets more a hold of us. And when he does, the great joy, the great freedom, the great power. I'm not done with my own. I raised them all to hit the bullseye. I did what I could to draw the bow back. And with each of them, I've tried to shoot an arrow that says, we're going to put a hole in your armor, evil one. We're going to make a statement against the darkness that you're bringing in. I want pillars of light. I want beacons of hope. I don't want kids, four out of ten, that are perpetually sad or depressed. Simple, innocent, childlike Christianity carried through adolescence will make them fruitful. In a walk with Christ, they will be faithful. And by God's gift, through a cooperative effort, prayer, superstructure, Humility in the hearts of the young people. We'll see the tide of the battle turn, and we'll turn back the battle at the gate through a spirit of judgment and justice. May God help us. Jesus is there for us. 
But I'm here to tell you today, raising my kids at the beginning of the digital, my kids were raised during the digital revolution. It came on. None of my kids grew up with a phone until probably they were about 16. Your kids are growing up where they can't escape unless somebody creates an environment that says, your job's not to escape. Your job is to fight back. This is where we're at. Anything less, my friends? And we're on the road to watching our kids be conformed to the image of this world. Our children are to be transforming this world. May we draw out the bow, get out the arrows, and hit the bullseye. May they get target practice working with experienced people. And may the devil know he needs to fear and tremble because more Davids have, a, have appeared on the battlefield and more giants are about to fall.